there, there's really not much more to say after we look at the price that Christ was willing to pay on the cross for us and for our sins. And it was the ultimate price because he gave his, his life. He suffered on the cross. He suffered before and he suffered during the time on the cross. And he did that willingly for us because he knew that we would owe a price for our sins that we couldn't pay. So he came and died for us. So thank you, worship team, for reminding us of that through your music today and the song that you chose. What a blessing. Well, great to see all the smiling faces here as we feel sort of one of the first sort of days of fall out there this morning, a bit of a Christmas in the air. And, and it's just... Uh, as in all days, a great opportunity to dig into God's Word and to see what He has to teach us. So for those of you who are new, uh, my name's Dean Hendrickson. I'm one of the pastors here, served with Chris and Dan. And, and what we do is we pick a book of the Bible and we start from the beginning and we teach to the end. And we teach through the chapters regardless of on first look at them, whether it looks like they're going to be easy to understand or easy to teach on or not. And, and hence, that's where I find myself today in chapter 10 of Genesis with names that I couldn't pronounce if I spent the rest of my life practicing them. But, but we get a chance to really see God in his word by doing that. So we're, we're, we don't run in fear when things get more challenging. And I thank God for giving us that courage because I don't think any of us have it on our own. So when Chris was going to finish up in chapter 9, he, he laughed and said, <laughs> Can't wait to see what you do with chapter 10. And I first looked at chapter 10 and I thought, wow, this is a book of the Bible that in my flesh I would skip. There's just nothing there. There's all these names. It's a genealogy. It's a history. But there's just not much to it. And I thank God that he didn't that he brought me here today to go through chapter 10. I really do, because there is some richness in chapter 10 I would have never seen save, but I had to study it to bring it this morning. So I'm grateful for that, and I thank God as always that he brings us to these points. So to kind of catch you up, if you weren't here last week, Pastor Chris talked about the end of Noah, really, or the last days of Noah in chapter 9. And, and we pick up in verses 24, so we know that Noah sinned. Right towards the end, Noah sinned. He, he drank wine, he got drunk, and he uncovered himself in his tent. And, and, you know, I think God brings reality to our lives. Here's Noah, man who walks with God, but Noah was a man. He wasn't perfect. He should encourage all of you that struggle and stumble and fall, because do we remember Noah for this last little bit of chapter 9? It, it almost never even gets into our databases. We remember Noah because he walked with God. He alone and his family were found with enough to keep him around. So he built an ark, a hundred and some years building this ark, waiting for this flood that didn't look like it was ever going to come. But Noah walked with God. But this was important for us because we realized that he was a man. He wasn't perfect. We fell asleep, he woke up, he knew what the problem was, and he went on to really talk, more prophesy what was going to happen in the future. That Canaan would be cursed. That Shem would be the messianic line. The messianic line 
would follow through Shem. And that we, us here today, we would find the Messianic line through the line of Japheth. Because he, he went up into, into Europe and he, he actually probably was the father of the Gentiles. And, and that's who we are. So we're going to look today now a little bit more about these generations. So let's pray and ask God to teach us. Lord, I come before you completely incapable of really digesting your word. But by the grace of your Holy Spirit, Lord, I fully trust that you will meet us here today and that you will teach us what you have for us to learn. So, Lord, I I lay down my perceived rights and anything that I might bring before the foot of your cross and ask that, Lord, you would speak today, that you would teach us through your word and that we would come away from this knowing you better for it. So, Lord, we are totally dependent upon you to show us meaning in your words. We're totally dependent upon you to to help us to learn and change. And so we ask that you would do that to us today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we go into chapter 10, we look at the descendants of Noah. So the, uh, the purpose of chapter 10 is stated in the first and the last verse. So in verse 1 it says, Now these are the records of the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and the sons who were born to them after the flood. And then verse 32, these are the families. So now he said, this is why I wrote it. And then he's going to clarify where these are the families of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, by their nations. And out of these, the nations were separated on the earth after the flood. So this this book, these verses two through thirty one really are a combination of a genealogy, an atlas and a history. We're going to bring it all together in the next 25 minutes and give you a roadmap of where we went to. And then in chapter 11, we're going to dig in a little deeper in the line of Shem. So, so let's look and see what we can figure out. So if we look at the genealogy of Noah, we saw this a while back. We, we look at Adam, and, and there weren't that many generations between Adam and Noah, and those were all of the the fathers, if you will, as we go through that line, these guys had incredibly long lifespans. And, and so we, we see as we go down the, the, the family line, and we've talked about this before, and Noah was a man who, who walked with God. But now let's look at the, the genealogy of Noah after this. And this is your test. I'm gonna, there's a test afterwards, and you're going to have to write this all down. It shouldn't take long. So it gets a bit complicated and, and we're going to kind of go through this line by line, but just to give you a perspective as we look at it, we've got Noah right over here, three sons, and then their genealogy as we go. So if we look at the, the next slide, please, sort of a, a little bit larger look of that area. And these are the nations that, that, that came out of this, and it kind of gives you a start. So you're going to want to find yourself a map it talks about the nations that's a little bit bigger or you can read it a little bit clearer than these. But this is kind of the concept that we're working on. We're looking in this area here to start with and everything's going to be happening from this area as we move out and see a dispersion of things as we go through that. So let's look and see what we can figure out. And let's look first at the families of Japheth. 
So, so we see the history here. It's fairly short, actually, just uh, four verses, verses two through five uh, of his sons. Uh, we have seven of his sons listed up here. And again, I apologize, the writing's small, but when you've got this big a family, you can't fit them all on a slide. But it's bigger than the last one, so I'm trying to give you something there. The concept as we look for here in this family is that we see that he had this, the seven different sons, and then within that we have the places that they went to. Uh, so Japheth's family were the northern Gentiles. So these guys, the, these six sons, moved up to the north. So pretty much straight north. And then the family of Javan and his son moved into the coastlands or, or the Greek areas. And probably the key to look at here as we evaluate this is verse 5. And from these, the coastlands of the nations were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. Now, you have to recognize that this verse that we're talking about in verse 5 actually occurs after chapter 11, which is what we're going to talk about next week. So this is a summary. So, so this chapter 10 really says, read it like this. Noah came off the ark with his three sons. Their, his sons had, their families grew. They had children. They eventually went to the Tower of Babel, which we'll talk about more next week. God said, this isn't going to work very well. So he dispersed them. And we're talking now about the dispersion side of things. And we're going to reel back around next week and talk about what actually happened at the tower. So right now, we've already assumed that the Tower of Babel has occurred and the families have been dispersed out. And so Japheth's family now becomes the Gentiles. So he's a progenitor of the Gentiles or us. The, the folks moved up into Europe. And, and it's interesting here that, that God moved this, this family north, part of them, and the rest to the west. And we're going to see that again with Apostle Paul. So the Apostle Paul in Acts was going north in his missionary journey. And the Apostle Paul wanted to go east. That was his plan, and we picked that up in Acts 16, verses 6 through 10. They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian area, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. They wanted to. Paul's plan was to go to Asia, but instead he followed the family path of Japheth. Right? So he says here, and after they came to Messiah, they were trying to go to Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troad. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, here we see, thousands of years before this, God had already ordained that Paul was going to follow this family up into Europe because he knew that someday we'd need to hear the good news. And our forefathers, almost all of our forefathers, will have come from this area. They moved further north into Europe, and then many came over across the big water into what we now call the United States. It was all planned. God, the minute he sent Japheth's family away... These, were, these guys moved away, and when we look at Shem and Ham's family, they pretty much stayed put. They expanded some, but the, but the main 
family part stayed fairly put in this area of the Middle East. But Japheth moved out. And God had already planned. He had already ordained a man named Saul, who was a persecutor of the church, to become Paul, follow, spread the good news of which we are the benefactors. Isn't that beautiful to think that here in the 10th chapter of Genesis, God had already planned for our salvation? Had it all worked out for us? It wasn't going to be through the line of Shem, which the Messianic line came through. It was going to be through the line of Japheth, but through the dedication of Paul to spread the good news, we got a chance to hear it. So it's a fairly small part here. Four verses. This is our history. In those four verses is the history of those of us who sit in this room and where we came from. If we now look at Ham, we see a very interesting family. So, so we know that Ham in chapter 9, right? So, well, let's take a step back from that. We have to believe that, that God planned for Ham to come on the ark, right? We have to wonder why, but we have to believe he wanted it because he brought him to the ark. And yet, when we look at Ham, when you see what, what his father said about him and his family in the end of chapter 9, in his prophecy of what they was going to look like, you stop sometimes and wonder, why did God do that? Why would God purposefully bring a family line along with him that would shake their fist at him? And I think it really fits if you look at it in verse 25 of chapter 9, where he says, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brother. God knew that for his people to really see his power and his majesty, that he would have to bring them up against a mighty nation. And the mighty nation was the nation of Ham and all of his children and their children and their children's children. You see, this was a powerful group. Ham reminds me a lot of Cain. Remember we talked about Cain, and when Cain kind of moved off the family tree, his family became the people that, that, that built weapons, built huge cities, that, that made music, that had the arts. His, Cain's family was a family that, that really developed what the world would look at and say, that's what we want to have. That's what we want representing us. Ham's family is much the same. If you look at it, Ham's family provided many of the same things. There's a lot of similarities. These guys were tough. They were, they were smart. They worked hard. They made huge cities. I mean, if you look at this, even just the, the family of Cush and Nimrod, you see the things that he did. It's absolutely astounding. So you got to think, God sent these guys before him, and before the line of Shem, because you see, if Shem would have been like Ham and, been, and his lineage had been able to build all these things, even if they'd have done it in the name of God, they'd have rested on their own strength. So I really believe that God brought Ham along to point out his majesty and glory. Because we're going to see in a minute that Shem's family was weak. 
these guys kind of were hidden among the monsters of Ham's line. And yet, who became whose servant? It was a beautiful picture of the majesty of God and what he could do in that. So what do we know about Ham's line? We know of four sons that are discussed, Canaan, Cush, Put, and Mizraim. What we know of these guys is that, that of Canaan's family, we have the Canaanites. And it's interesting, when he talks about Canaan's line, he names two sons, and then for the rest of the folks that he, that he mentions, he actually talks about the people, the nationalities. So we have two sons. These others all, are all represented by sons as well. But he doesn't talk about Jeb. He talks about the Jebusites. Put moves into the African region. We really know nothing about him. That's it. That's what we get to know about him. We assume part of why we don't know so much about him is the fact that his family line probably didn't have a huge impact on the Israelites. So at this point in time, it wasn't so critical. Mizraim. Many of his sons, the, the, the first four, moved into the Egyptian area. Pathrasim and Kaslehim then moved into different areas, and the last one, the Philistine. So an interesting family dynamics here. We know most about Cush and Canaan and their family. Let's read a little bit about Cush, because it really this is, I think, going to be a critical junction in understanding what God was doing here. And in verse 8, and now Cush became the father of Nimrod. He became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. And at the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalna and the land of Sinar. From that land, he went forth into Assyria and built Nineveh and Rebathir and Kala and resin between Nineveh and Kala that is a great city. Wow, so what we really hear about the, the, the family of Cush? Nimrod. Have you ever, when do you typically use the word Nimrod? <laughs> You're probably not thinking of the mighty one, are you, when you, when you use Nimrod for someone's name. But we look at Nimrod, this man must have been really something. He, uh, quite likely the builder of the city of, of Babel, which eventually became Babylon. And we know Babylon became the destroyer of God's people about 600 B.C. So we know Babylon was a big power place. We know Nineveh was a thorn in somebody's side, right? Jonah was so afraid to go to Nineveh, he would rather sleep in the belly of a whale than to go. But eventually he went. So Nimrod's name in Hebrew means rebel. Not a big surprise. He reminds me a lot, again, of Cain and Cain's family. It's interesting, there's a, there's a lot of thought that much of mythology comes from the image of Nimrod. So the centaur actually is, is, looks as if, in fact, it probably looked, they looked at Nimrod to come up with the concept of, this, of the centaur because he was very effective at training and domesticating horses, and he used horses in the work that he did. So that's interesting. Mighty champion, superior in strength and courage, military strength and leadership. That just defines Nimrod. So I wrestled really hard with this concept of Nimrod being a mighty hunter before the Lord. And I thought, this just doesn't seem to make sense. On one hand, we've got this guy that seems to be shaking his fist at God that does all these things that are bad. On one hand, it says the mighty hunter before the Lord. Well, it turns out that when it talks about the mighty hunter before the Lord here, it really means against the Lord. It means standing in front of 
in direct line in opposition with. Not, I always think about standing before the Lord in more of a humble posture. One of I'm standing before the Lord or I'm kneeling before the cross as a positive thing, that of, of a humble nature. But in this, it was in defiance. You could just see him like this, standing in front of God, saying, go ahead, try to come this way. And he built these monstrous cities in these big areas, and he was this mighty man. One person talks about Nimrod and says he's a tyrant, ruthlessly conquering men and establishing an empire. And I think that fits with what we see about Nimrod in this. So here's a man who went on in direct defiance of God and built monstrous cities, built empires, and he built all this beautiful infrastructure that would eventually become used by the line of Shem. So he was great. So he went before, stood up, shook his fist at God. God said, go ahead, build the cities, build this, build that. I'm going to use them later. You'll save me some time. And and so we, we went to look at that. One of the things I think it's really important here is to recognize that Ham, his, his, his grandfather, showed a disrespect for his father. We don't see that Ham showed disrespect for God. But we see a direct disrespect for his father. Two generations later, Nimrod stood before God and said, you're nothing. So an absolute disrespect for God. We have to be careful, right? Fathers. Make mark of this. Make note of this. When you do something, your children are watching you. Your grandchildren will watch you. The disrespect that Ham showed to his father was multiplied in the life of Nimrod. Be cautious about that. The other thing to look at here is that many people thought of Nimrod as a hero because of all of his great exploits. But he's just not the kind of person you really want to follow. So think about those things. Discernment is a really critical point in reading through these. What about Canaan? So we know that the line of Canaan was going to become the servant. Now, the Canaanites, so the line of Canaan, the family of Canaan, then moved into the central portion of what we now know of as Israel. So so the Canaanites filled that whole area. And, and these were the guys, these were the nations that were there, along with a few others, when, when Moses came, right? God had promised to Moses, this, this is your place, right? The land flowing of milk and honey, we're going to see, starting in chapter 12, how God was bringing Abraham to this. And, and what a beautiful spot this was going to be. This is your home. So Moses brought them up. They sent the 12 spies in. And what they saw... Was, was, were giants, strong men, and they were petrified. All but two of them were petrified. And, and you can see where the challenge was here. So these guys, look at, this, look at this group of Ham and the family of Ham, even the Canaanites. They were looked at like, oh, man, I can't defeat them. There's no way in the world. We've got to give up. Let's go back. I'd rather live in the desert then go into the land of milk and honey because these guys are big and they are tough. God wanted these guys, the Israelites at this time, to trust him. Right? It's like Gideon. It's the story of Gideon when he goes up against the Midianites. 
So Gideon, in his wine press, threshing wheat, and the angel of the Lord comes up and says, Oh, mighty warrior! (laughs) That's why I'm hiding, because I'm a tough guy. It's the same picture. He takes 30,000 people, God says, to fight the Midianites. Now, the Midianites are beyond number. You can't even count them. God says, that's too many. Sends 20,000 home. 10,000 is still too many. He sends... 9,700 home. 300. That'll do. We can do. This was the picture God wanted Shem's family to look at here as well, eventually, as they went into the land flowing with milk and honey. But you see, it wasn't time yet. There were a few things that had to take place that Pastor Dan will talk about in chapter 12 that had to happen before they could go into this land and take it over. In the meantime, God planted... The Canaanites in there, he planted Ham. They built big cities, big places. They grew tough. They grew strong, big military forces. Because God wanted to show that just like with Gideon and his 300 guys, they could take on a group of people that had more camels than you could count. That was the plan. And he was setting them up for it. So that's my perspective on why God allowed Ham to come along on the ark. Because he needed him. He needed to set the stage to show the Israelites his majesty and glory. What about Shem? So Shem's family is very interesting as well. They list five sons to Shem. The, uh, for the most part, we don't hear much about any of them. So, so they go on to different places, Elam and the Elamites, Aram and the Syrians, Lud, Persians, Asher and the Assyrian. We see a little bit of the family of Aram, but, but not really much for the most part. We're, we're going to be looking down here towards Eber and, and the great grandchild of Shem. And in verse, in chapter 10, verse 25, we see an interesting perspective here. And two sons were born to Eber. And the name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided and his brother's name was Joktan. So, so what do we know about these two? We don't get a lot about the rest of these. We get one name, one name. And in fact, is when we even follow down Pelegs, we get one, genera- one name per generation until we get to Terah, who's Abram's father. So we know that Joktan's family probably became the Arabs, those Shemites they were called. And if you look at this whole list of people here, uh, and Peleg's family went to Ru, Serug, Nahor, Terah, and eventually Abram. So this is the messianic line. So we can follow this, right? From Adam to Seth, through Seth's family to Noah, from Noah to Shem to this guy. And I still can't do his name. I've tried all week. Shelah, Eber, Peleg, and down to Abram. We've seen now the messianic line is intact. It was promised to us in Genesis chapter 3. We had a promise it was going to be there and we see it now so we can follow down this line and see Christ coming. We see it on the way. And so when things were divided, we believe that this, this was in a situation here where this happened at the Babel. So Peleg and was, was born and alive at the time of the Tower of Babel. And as people were dispersed and divided, that's, when, that's when, when he was born. So we see that things were divided there and, and the, the line followed. Now, the line of Peleg reminds me a lot of the line of Seth. Remember, Ham went out and built an empire. Shem and his line went into the same spot. 
kind of fit into the cracks, where there were weaknesses in the grout, if you will. Shem's family set up residence. So there was no doubt, if you look at the families in here, that Ham's line would have been superior to Shem's line. No question. If you just look at what they did and all the things that were going on. But yet we know, and we're going to see this coming due later on in Genesis, where Shem's line actually now becomes the more superior, and Ham's line serves them. So there's a lot of similarities to the line of Seth versus Cain. Shem's line, especially through Peleg, kept the worship of the true God in the post-Tower of Babel era. So, so we were able to, to see that. Now we also see in Genesis chapter 24 and 28 that Abram and Isaac were very careful when they chose their wives to make sure that they chose their wives from the line of Shem, this line, because they knew that God had directed them to go in that direction. So it's a great, it's a great concept as we look at this. So if we go back and, and kind of summarize where we've been today, this chapter that looked like just a whole bunch of names to me really has got some richness to it. And you can see God's purpose. So God's purposeful in everything he does. Ham came on purpose. Ham had it, Ham's line purposefully went the way they did so God could show his majesty and glory. He gave the inheritance to the nation. He moved Japheth's line away, out of this center area. He moved them off to the side and he said, don't you worry, I'm going to send Paul to send the good news to you later. Just hang on tight. So he had it all ready to go. But in this center zone where we saw the superiority of Ham and the inferiority of Shem and his line, we saw the messianic line continued on. It was still there. It was still ready to be revealed in due time. Other thing that's important here is we see just because this nation looks big and tough and has all these things, has all this money and everything else, doesn't mean, in fact, that they're better than anybody else. We might want to take a close look at that here where we live. We're not mentioned anywhere in Revelation. You know that? It doesn't even talk about us. We don't even exist. Look at us now, right? The world superpower. We're not even worthy of mention in Revelation. The other thing is everybody has a purpose. All nations have a purpose. The nation of Ham was critical. The nation of Ham started in three generations to fall away from God. It took no more than three. It may have been less than that. We just don't know for sure what Cush was like. But we know Nimrod, three generations from the ark. Do you think he didn't hear the story? Do you think he didn't get what God had just done? Do you think that it escaped him? He didn't go to story time or Sunday school that week? Three generations. And he was shaking his fist at God. He was standing in opposition to God. It doesn't take long to lose that. They're all critical. In Acts 17, the God who made the world and all things in it since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hand, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. 
And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. That's Noah. Having determined their appointed times, the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him. Though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his children. Every one of us has can trace ourselves back to Noah. We may miss a generation or two in between, but we can get back there. Every one had what God designed and destined for them, even the power of the family of Ham that would tumble and fall just as the Tower of Babel. So if you want to look at it, just a little graph to kind of give you a perspective here at the end. So we've, we followed down. We've got Adam, Seth. Eight generations later, we have Noah. Three sons. The line of Shem, we eventually get Abram and Christ. Here we are. We're in this line. Japheth's generations. We're right here. But by the death of Christ on the cross, we are... We're brought right into the fold. We're adopted into the family. And we can go right to heaven. And you know what? The same for Ham's line. He's not cut off here. There's no block here saying that that's not true. We all come back together through Christ. So as it all started with Noah after the flood, it all ends through Christ and bringing us back into one family. That's chapter 10. There's a lot more than just a bunch of difficult names. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I am so thankful that you you come before us. Lord, that you have destined who we are and what you want of us. Lord, my prayer for us today, that we would be a people that would be looking to find what you want for us. That we would not be out there like Nimrod with what potential he had. Lord, if he could have done all that he had done in your name, it's hard to imagine what it would have looked like. But yet, Lord, it wasn't to be. Lord, help us not to be in that role. Help us not to be building kingdoms. Help us not to be creating empires, but the whole time shaking our fist at you. Lord, help us to be like the line of Seth and the line of Noah and Shem and Abram, as we will learn more about here in a couple of weeks. Help us to be like these guys, Lord, that, that while not perfect, while they were still sinners, Lord, they, they lived for you. They worked for you. They laid their lives down so that the Messiah could come through their family line. Lord, help us to see that. Lord, teach us, guide us, and make us more like Christ. Amen.